want to welcome uh, everyone this morning. Um, for those of you expecting to see Tim, my apologies. He'd rather be here than uh, what he had to deal with. He wanted me to uh, announce that he he had to have surgery yesterday to remove the uh, kidney stone. It was apparently too big to pass. Uh, you know. So they, they went and got it yesterday, and he's he's recovering, recuperating. He, he uh, especially wanted to uh, thank everyone for the thoughts and prayers about last weekend. I don't know if, for those of you who are not on the email list, uh, for those who are listening uh, online, he was really struggling the night before his program Saturday out in Oregon. It's just significant pain, uh, vomiting, unable to keep you know fluids or anything solid down. I mean, he couldn't even keep uh, pain medicine down. Well, Saturday morning he woke up and managed to get dressed, and when he got to the program and was able to keep He'd be virtually pain-free you know, with a half of a, a mild dosage of a pain pill, um, and he'd take one of those about every two hours every time they have a break. For those of you who don't know Tim or never seen Tim, he's a 6'4", 6'5", and a half a pain pill probably wouldn't touch him, so there's nothing short of miraculous that his symptoms were able to keep in check, and he was able to do the whole program, uh, no, no pain, no vomiting, et cetera, et cetera, and then, as soon as he got back to the hotel, it started back up again. He... Again, appreciates thoughts and prayers uh, along those lines, and, and he's due to be away again next week. Uh, I will be back here next week, and then uh, hopefully he'll be back in, in uh, full health in a couple weeks. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, uh, I want to thank you for the miracles that you wrought uh, last week in Oregon uh, regarding Tim. I want to thank you for bringing him safely through his surgery and uh uh, yeah, I ask for your continued healing and guidance uh, in his recovery. Uh, please be with us this morning as we continue to study uh, of the, uh, the lives and the efforts of your interventions with the children of Israel. Please can uh, enlighten our minds. Please continue to work in our hearts and our lives and transform our character so that when you come, we may see you face to face for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. We are studying uh, lesson number six. Uh, in our book, uh, our quarterly of numbers, People on the Move. Uh, the title of the lesson is Planning Ahead. The memory text for Sabbath's lesson is actually taken from Ezekiel, and this, this is the prophet talking to the nation of Israel, referring them back to the experiences of the children of Israel. Uh, someone read it for us, please. And But I said unto the children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe the judgments, nor defile yourselves with your idols. I swore to your God, walk in my statutes, and keep my commandments, and do them. Thoughts? Questions? Comments? What were the statutes of the children of Israel at the time that uh, they were turned away from Canaan and then made to wander the wilderness? The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. They had been given the Ten Commandments by God and written by the finger of God. These were the statutes given to the fathers, but were they the statutes of the children of Israel at that time? What statutes were they observing? I think this refers to the, uh, their beliefs while still in Egypt and the gods of Egypt and all that stuff like they had before. They lost them in four generations in Egypt. They lost a lot of the principles that Abraham and Jacob had. So God had to kind of reteach them. Okay. 
further down in this text, it says, you know, nor defile yourself with idols. I am the Lord your God. If you go to a Bible search engine, you Google, I am the Lord. You know, that, as many times as God had to say this, you know, I am your God. I am the Lord. And ever since Adam and Eve fell, God has been trying to reintroduce himself, reveal himself to humanity. He's been trying to educate us as to, no, it, it's me. Follow, follow, follow my way. This is who I am. Okay? I, I'm not carved from stone. I'm not made from wood. I'm not, I'm not a celestial body. Okay? I'm the creator, not the created. Um, he, he's continually, continually trying to reveal who he is. Uh, and the sanctuary process, the sacrificial process, all of these things are designed to reveal the coming Savior and who God is. And finally, we still didn't get it all the way down to where Christ came. So God sent his son to finally reveal who he is. That was the turning point in our earth's history. So back to this text. Don't follow the statutes of your fathers. Don't observe their judgments. What were the children? What were the judgments of the children of Israel? What sort of judgments did they make about the statutes that God gave them? Let me ask this a different way. Did they judge the statutes that God gave them as trustworthy or untrustworthy? Untrustworthy. Untrustworthy, of course. Why else would they beg him for quail? Why else would they ask him to send spies into Canaan? Okay, God didn't, God didn't want him to send spies into Canaan. The children of Israel asked for spies. So God let them have let them have their way. They sent spies. Ten of them came back with a, a, a negative report. Only Joshua and Caleb came back and said, "We can do this." So you know, here we go. Here we go. God gave them what they wanted. You know, we can't do it. Okay, stay here. Their judgments about God's statutes—they judged him to be untrustworthy. So he patiently led them throughout Egypt. Uh, led them throughout the wilderness. Until the generation of uh, disbelievers went to sleep, and he tried it again. How did they defile themselves with an idol? An idol is a piece of rock or, or stone or wood. How do you defile yourself with an idol? But how does that defile you? What happens in the mind? Well, whatever happens in the mind happens in the whole body. And if they were not trusting God, but instead they were putting trust in idols. You tend to become similar to what you worship. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Okay. By beholding, we become changed. We try to emulate that which we, which we behold. And to, to try to elevate yourself to a piece of rock is counterproductive, is defiling. Uh, the New Testament, Paul says that sexual promiscuity, greed, lusts of the eyes and heart, these are also idolatry. Something to think about. All right, Sunday's lesson. Here we're looking at uh, the gifts, uh, the offerings that uh, God has asked the children of Israel to, to put together. Someone read Numbers 15, 1 through 10. Someone else take verses 18 through 21. Let's uh, go through and examine these and see if we can flesh out any uh, pearls of wisdom here. After the people were defeated and humiliated by the Amalekites and the Canaanites, the Lord said to Moses, Talk to those who are young, who will not die in the wilderness, and say to them, 
When you come to the land I promised to give you, and bring to the Lord from your herds or flocks offerings to fulfill a special vow, or simply as a free will offering or a festival offering, you are to bring with it two pounds of flour mixed with two pints of olive oil. You also are to bring with it two pints of grape juice as a drink offering. And when these offerings are given from the, given from the heart, they will greatly please the Lord. And when a ram is offered, it should be accompanied by four quarts of flour mixed with a quart and a half of olive oil. And with a quart and a half of grape juice as a drink offering, this will please the Lord. And when a young bull is offered as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a peace offering, it should be brought with six pounds of flour mixed with two quarts of olive oil and two quarts of grape juice as a drink offering. This will please the Lord. This is the clear word. Okay, thank you. Speaking to the, the generation that's going to take possession of the land of Canaan, he says, when you take possession of the land, then he elaborates on what, uh, what offerings he's asking them to bring. Consider being a uh, part of that group, the children of Israel, and your, your diet consists of manna, water, maybe some milk. Consider how this generation must have looked forward to actually being able to stop and plant something and have it grow and then uh, benefit from that, to be able to eat from their own, their own garden their own, and, and, and drink grape juice and, and to, to press olives and make olive oil in, order, you know, in, their, in their cooking and in their, in their whatever. Think about uh, how, how, much, how forward they must have looked to that time. But why tell them now, 40 years in advance? Well, I think that's part of the thing that's so neat about it, because they had just been told to go back into the wilderness, and then right then God is giving them a vision of hope that, yeah, you are coming back. Right. It, things that are going to happen. Yeah, know? it's an encouragement, um, something to look forward to. It, I, I think if God hadn't done this quickly, uh, the, the potential for the this generation to... Kind of roll their eyes and say, "Oh, now, now what? You know, we're going to be staggering around the wilderness until our parents die." Um, the, the potential for discouragement is pretty high. I think that when I read this, that what what struck me was that in the face of adversity, they were able to give thanks, or they were instructed to give thanks for things that would take place in the future. And I think of my own life, and that's that's a very challenging way of doing it, but I think that obviously the Lord has instructed them to do it. It's very beneficial for us. It gets our minds off of our own circumstances at the current time and accepts and allows Him to work because it shows faith that He will actually provide these items. And as you mentioned earlier, I was looking at the kinds of stuff. I said, well, what kind of stuff is this? This is stuff that you would eat for the most part. In other words, it was promise of things that they would enjoy in the future, and even in the current time that they would have. And I think that, to me, struck me in some way when I read that this morning, that many times we just need to be thankful for the things that God has promised, even in His Word, that are not necessarily stuff we put in our stomach, but uh, spiritual blessings, too, that God promises. How often do we thank God in advance for those when we don't see them yet fully revealed in our lives? Well said. Excellent point. Any other thoughts? That's interesting, the way you said that. We have to wander around here until our parents die. Uh, probably initially when that was said, the next generation maybe possibly was young enough that they didn't really get it. But 
that must have weighed heavily on some people's minds. Oh, absolutely. You've got to imagine there were teenagers and 20 and 30 year olds that saw the promised land. And and the idea that they had another portion in time, I don't know whether God revealed the exact time of when he was going to bring them in, but he did say that, you know, in when the, until this generation passes away. He, and he specifically said 40 years. That was the time frame that was put on it. And from the parents' perspective, too, I mean, if you as a parent realized you were passed this on so intently to your children for the next 40 years, they were going to... Mm-hmm. But even though, even though they knew that they had really messed up and weren't going to be able to enter into the promised land now... They at least knew, and that some of them weren't going to enter into it at all. Mm-hmm. They at least had the promise that, that God was still at work for them, and that he was still going to fulfill his promise to their children. And like for me, that would mean something to be, you know, as a parent. Right. Children, you know? Right. <laughs> and that's a great point, because Moses himself didn't enter the promised land. Uh, and yet... I imagine he felt some of those same things, knowing that the people that he led, you know, he felt their joy uh, vicariously, I would imagine. Um, the the lesson, in the middle of the second paragraph, is in other words, these non-bloody offerings help point them to the material blessings that were to be theirs were they to remain faithful. Does faithfulness to God uh, guarantee material blessings? What does it guarantee? A connection to God. Mm, which, excellent. Which, which, in other words, guarantees us. And the spiritual blessings. And life. life eternal. Can we be faithful and not have connection with God? Faithful to what? Well, it depends on you. Faithful. Faithful to church. Okay. Well, there's different kinds of faithfulness. Yes. You can be faithful in your job, and that's a real honor to God. There was an article in the recent review to that effect that faithfulness in our work, doing our work well, brings real honor to God, period. Well said. I, correct. I agree. Jesus himself said that there will be a class of people that perform miracles in his name, that cast out demons in his name, that heal in his name, and yet at the at his coming he will tell them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So the question here about can can we be faithful and not know God, I think is a valid one. She said, can you be faithful and not be connected to God? I think we would have to define what connected to God means. Because by some definition of the word, we are all connected to God and the fact that we exist, everybody. I don't know what, I mean, I think you would have to define more clearly what connected to God means. Knowing God is a different thing. Yes. Knowing that, taking it a little more clearly, find knowing the truth about God is an even more different thing. Yes, I agree. Any other thoughts, insights? I yes. Have a comment about those, um, the promised land, and I've always thought of it as a, a type of heaven. And 
Moses didn't. And I think what God was showing the people at that time was that the object of heaven or the object of the promised land is not what, where your motivation should be. Your motivation should be your relationship with God. Until they got that done, they didn't receive the promised land. But I think even though they, the relationships weren't perfect ever, um, I think that was the meaning that God was trying to give to the people back at that time. Mm. Great insight. Thank you. Let's look at some New Testament applications to the gifts that were to be offered once they took possession of the land of Canaan. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of Old Testament references and New Testament references about a fragrant aroma of sacrifices, you know, ra- raising to he- being raised to heaven and God being pleased with the aroma of sacrifice. I don't know if any of you have smelled burning flesh or burning hair. There's nothing pleasing about that aroma. So there's got to be something uh, a little a little more to this um, uh, metaphor here. So I'm going to take Romans 1, uh, 12, 1 and 2. Uh, someone else take 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. I'm going to expand that a little bit. Uh, someone else take Ephesians 5, 2. Uh, whoever's got the Romans text, just shout it out. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The thing that jumps out to me uh, in this is that, so that you may prove by testing what is the will of God. There's... There's unfortunately a thought process or, or a, a theme, a way of doing things that in Christianity that says that God gets offended when we question him, when we, when we test him. Um, we're supposed to take, you know, the God said it, I believe it, that settles it approach. This would indicate otherwise. Okay? The truth has no problem with being tested because it, the truth doesn't change with being tested. In fact, the truth shines brighter with repeated testing and testing from all directions. Lies are what don't like to be tested. Lies are what don't, don't like the examination. Lies are the dishonest are the ones that like, just do it because I said it. Okay? Thoughts? The living sacrifice, I mean, if, if there's a, uh, he talks about it being holy and pleasing, I think in the same way, um, you know, as an emblem of the ultimate sacrifice being a living sacrifice, I think the aroma was a way that God had evidence of, or just it, it amplified that people are presenting themselves. That there was a stinky smell, you know, associated with is not the, you know, that wasn't what God was relishing. It was that his people were presenting themselves to be transformed, to be made new in their mind, and so on. Uh, excellent point. I agree. Someone uh, uh, who has got Second Corinthians 2, uh, 14 through 17. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
to the one we are, the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. Thank you. So, how are the remnant people, the chosen ones, how are they the fragrance of death to one group and the fragrance of life to another group? How does that happen? The things of God are foolishness to this world, right? Okay. The stoning of Stephen, he was fragrance to God, but he wasn't to them, the people stoning him. Any other examples? Uh, see, I, I've personally experienced being in a situation where here, obviously, we're in an Evans community, and living outside of that uh, in my graduate studies was quite different. And um, there, I, I could sense in my own life and my interaction with people how that, that was true. And much of the world is not interested in what we as Christians hold as important. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps the best example of this would be Jesus himself. He was the fragrance of death to the Pharisees, the the church leaders of Israel. And yet to many of the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, he was the fragrance of life. What is it that Jesus held? What do you think it is that the world isn't interested in that we as Christians are interested in? Dying to self. Mm Mm-hmm. And what does that look like? The world isn't interested in. Here again, we go back to model of the the two antagonistic principles that work in the universe. There's Satan's government, save self, survival of the fittest. God's government, which says, you know, greater love hath no man than he laid down his life for a friend. But we are told that as, as time progresses... Every every heart and mind will end up in one of those two camps. Save self, save others. We're not we're not given a, a percentage of breakdown of what that's gonna be. We don't know if it's gonna be fifty fifty or seventy thirty or ninety ten. We don't know. And it's probably good that we don't know. Uh, I think if God had considered it important that we know the percentages, he would have told us. And you see this all the time. You see this in well, take professional athletics, for example. Much of professional athletics is, is focused around individual achievement. Me, me, me. You know, look at me. I made this catch. Look at me. I, I, uh, I won the game with that shot. You know, whatever it is. Um, you, rarely, you rarely see in professional athletics supporting or congratulating the other team. You rarely see that in the media. All our hearts and minds are, are being shaped for one, one government or the other. And, and that's... That's the way it is. Does that answer your question? I understand that. I think there's there's two different uh, approaches to the thought here. I, what you're saying is true, and I think to a large extent the world isn't interested in that. But if there truly are two divisions, one is survival of the fittest, one is survival of me, if the part of the world that is interested in the survival of me, they would be interested in a group of people who put their well-being first would be what I'm what I'm thinking. That would get their interest up if it's about me surviving or it's about you surviving and my life turns into about you surviving. 
that Correct. Uh, and absolutely. And that the path that God was trying to lead Israel down. He, he was trying to he was trying to shape them into a people that would attract the attention, that would be so interested in the well-being of one another within that community, and that would extend out so they were interested in the well-being of the surrounding communities. You know, we're going to look here later in the lesson about the, you know, the, oh, how they're to deal with the foreigners, the strangers in their gates. And, and then it would extend so far that they would be interested in the well-being of their enemies. And yes, that, that, would, have, that would have attracted a, a great deal of attention. And you know, the New Testament says that they will, they will know you're Christians by the food you eat. No? Oh, they'll know you're Christians by what day you worship on. That's not it either? No, of course not. It says they will know you're Christians by your love. This goes right along with your, your, your assertion that if, if a, an individual or a group of individuals develop that, that uh, caring about others so much, that attracts attention. That, that makes people stand up and say, I want to be part of that. I want to, I want to know what you know. Yes? Well, I, I think... That's what, what you were saying goes along with it. Part of the problem is that we don't always present ourselves as a body of love. Right. And we instead, what people see is a body of rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. And I think that we take for granted that, like, if we say Jesus saves or do you have Jesus in your heart, you and I know exactly what that means when I ask you that question. But if you go up to somebody on the street who's never even heard of Jesus or relationship with him and you say, do you have Jesus in your heart? What does that mean? It's like a whole other language. Like, what, right. what do you mean, Lord Jesus, in my heart? You know. And I think that the, you, we have to come at it from a different angle. We have to come at it, meet them where they are, and just love, and then let them ask the questions instead of us presenting them with the questions. I think if they see the fruits of your life, if they see the happiness in your life, if they see you know, that you love them unconditionally, you're going to know what what makes you treat me that way, what makes you treat your family that way, you know, and then they're going to ask the questions, and that's the opportunity that we have to witness them. But if you just present them with these and those, it's not, it's not appealing, and that's unfortunately what a lot of the general public sees. Correct. So in other words, we need to reveal Jesus to them instead of telling them to you know, get Jesus in their life. We need, we need to reveal who Jesus is. The love definitely has a big part in bringing people in, but there are others who completely reject even if you're showing love because they see your life as something good and they self-preservation forces them to push you away. They don't want to be in the refiner's fire because it's painful. Excellent point. Many times I think society... Certainly, I, I agree with the comment made back here about showing love to people is, is how we can attract them. But people still have a choice. And if they see the way you live or how you respond, in addition to love, I mean, the other things that are important to your faith, if that co- cuts across what is important to them or what they see as success for themselves. And I think many in society, the key to success is also exclusivity. In other words, I want to close more and more people out as I rise up. Mm-hmm. That whole process means whatever is different about you is something I don't want to be a part of, in addition to maybe the love or whatever you're showing. So it can, 
It's going to be a very multifaceted thing, and it may take many years for them to come around to the point. It's not something that happens in a short, brief interaction with somebody. It may be years of interaction before they would be willing, because in a way they're testing, too, the things that we're talking about, right? Absolutely. I think this whole Sunday lesson is about um, gratitude and who actually is the source of all wealth and all of our um, everything that we have and everything that we are is God. And it's hard to understand that when you haven't been brought up Christian, that everything you have is a result of God. You don't see that. And then when you see people, you meet people who are true Christians and who have, even if they don't have things, they have this peace and this joy. You wonder why. And, and, and you, from them, you hear from them that they are always grateful to God. And you wonder why, when they don't have anything, how can they be grateful? But it's for, their, it's for all the things that God gives you, that even material. Um, and I think that's what draws people to the church, or to, to is to walk into a place where people are grateful for what, and content with whatever they have. And I think that's what God was showing the people in the desert, was where, do, where does everything come from? Who should you be giving gratitude to? Everything, when they were going to get these new, um, all of their offerings, the fruit, first fruits and everything else that they had, that was, that was also to show that God, um, this came from God. I'm only offering back what he has given us. Mm-hmm. And I think that was you know, part of the point of the lesson. And, and I think it's also what draws people to the church. Excellent. Thank you. Let's look ahead to Monday's lesson. This is an outline of the way God wanted the children of Israel to deal with strangers or, or quote, foreigners. Let's look at uh, Numbers 15, verses 14 through 16, and then some New Testament examples of, of this dovetailing together with uh, the God of the Old Testament. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, and Colossians 3, 11. Someone take those two texts as well, please. These rules and regulations apply to your descendants throughout your generations and to the foreigners who live among you. If those who are not Israelites wish to please the Lord, they are to offer offerings the same way you Israelites do. These rules and regulations apply to the whole community, to those who are native-born Israelites and to those who are not. You are the foreigners living among you. You and the foreigners living among you are the same before the Lord. And all the rules and regulations that apply to you also apply to foreigners who have come to live among you. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. All right. What's the theme here? We're all in one boat. (laughs) Right. Any other thoughts? I guess I wondered why, you know, the Israelites failed 
it, it sounds like that in order to be a part of this, uh, a foreigner would have had to have come to the temple and offered sacrifice. And I believe they had a rule where you could not enter beyond a certain point if you were a Gentile. And it's just fascinating. I'm not sure if that included that or if that was their own arbitrary system of excluding people, but um, how this seems to go quite against that concept. Right. Let's go back to God's original intent. What was God's plans for plan for the uh, Assyrians, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Edomites, all the otherites that uh, were generally considered the Canaanites that were generally considered the enemies of Israel? What did God want for them? He wanted to heal them. He wanted to save them. He did not intend that they would ever be lost. And his chosen tool was the nation of Israel. His chosen instrument. His chosen instrument within the nation of Israel was the Levites. The Levites were to function as the priests, thereby transforming Israel. Israel was to then reveal the nature and character of God to the pagan nations. That was God's intent. And they failed, so he had to send his son. God... At the time of the children of Israel, God still wanted to include those that didn't believe him or believe in him. It's the same theme that we see all the way up to, uh, to Paul and even to today. God still wants to have a people that is going to heal the rest of his children. Okay? How have we functioned in this role? Poorly. Poorly. I agree. How do we treat the smoker who wants to take communion? How do we treat the divorcee that uh, wants to be a deaconess? How do we treat the overtly homosexual that wants to come to church? How do we treat these people? I think God's definition of foreigner uh, is broad enough to include all these groups. We're not just talking about people of a different skin color or people of a different uh, nation of origin. Talking about people even of a different belief system. It's interesting because looking at the Israelites, you couldn't have been any more foreign than the Israelites were either. They were truly foreigners in this land and they didn't know God any better than anybody else. In fact, some people outside of the little Israelite camp knew more about God than they did. Right. And so I think it's interesting that it wasn't them that set them apart. It was God that set them apart. And it's the same way with us. It isn't us that is special in any way, shape, or form. In fact, people outside of our little band still have a better picture of God than... Absolutely. And and it's, uh, it's a shame, isn't it? Um, let's look at Wednesday's lesson. Sins of defiance. Someone read Numbers 15, 30, and 31. But anyone who sins openly and defiantly, whether he is an Israelite or a foreigner, is guilty of showing public contempt for the Lord and is being put to death. Because he has openly rejected what the Lord has said and has publicly defiled him, the man is responsible for his own death. And a few verses later we see a bit of a harsh example of this. Uh, read uh, verses 32 to 36, please. 
While the children of Israel were camped in the wilderness, a man defiled the Lord and went out to gather wood on the Sabbath when there was no need to do so. Those who found him doing this brought him to Moses and Aaron to stand trial in front of the whole community. And they put him under guard because they were not sure what to do. And the Lord said to Moses, The man is to be put to death. The whole community is to take him outside the camp and stone him. And so the people took him outside the camp, as the Lord had said, and stoned him to death. What's the point? I really think that all these things that we're reading about and talking about today show that God is having to resort to some very big emergency measures to start these people, even in square one. This is a group of people who are coming out of slavery, and God is having to tell them details about things to do for their worship service, you know, things to do to be good to other people, things to do whenever there's defiance in the camp. And like Dr. Jennings says at times, he said, um, you know, you go to places where, where you get killed for having your salary wrong or whatever it was. <laughs> So then Tomatoes do, and celery. Yeah, so then if you do something bigger and you and you just get slapped in the hand for it, then it looks like it's not that big of a deal. But for a group of people who are used to people treating people horribly and being slayed, no value for human life, then God has to use an emergency measure like this to even get their attention and to help them see that this is something that's serious. Okay. You, know, you need to think about here. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Well, I had a real hard time with this. Me too. And so I just looked at everything I could on it in the commentaries. Everything. Anything I found was in Patriarchs and Prophets when it said that it wasn't the fact that he gathered the wood on the Sabbath. Because there are times when they lived in areas where it was cold where they were allowed to build a fire on Sabbath. Mm-hmm. It was the fact that at that time in the wilderness, heat was not needed. He didn't need to build a fire. And it was a defiance act against God. Mm-hmm. Because I thought to myself, building a fire on Sabbath, I mean, what in the world do we do every day or every Sabbath? I mean, you know, if it's that important back then not to build a fire, who says we can build it today? Right. But, but it was the act of defiance that it wasn't necessary to build one, and he was showing his defiance towards God and the Sabbath by doing that. Okay, uh, that's a great insight. Thank you. What does it mean that okay. God is a jealous God? I think that it's one thing to be all accepting and it's another thing to lose your identity when you accept others. To accept the foreigners, to accept the people, they had to come in and they had to change their ways and follow the same principles. God's principles were still there, were eternal, and the people had to follow them. God is jealous of his principles and his character. He wants to maintain that. He has to maintain that. The same thing as a church. A church should be accepting to all peoples of all beliefs and all different backgrounds, cultures, and whatever. However, there's principles that need to be followed. And if you want to be part of a membership of the church, you need to follow those principles. But in order to be a member of the church, okay, so the church has rules and regulations, and if you're going to be a member, you need to follow that. But is that conditional to salvation? No, I think that was conditioned to be part of the people of Israel. Because, like, or be part of the membership of the church, not salvation. Because, like, we as Seventh-day Adventists have certain standards and doctrines that we go by. Mm-hmm. Does that necessarily mean that that's also the doctrines we need to go by in order to be saved? Does it? 
it's conditional to sanctification, not salvation or justification. What's the difference between sanctification and salvation? Justification or salvation has to do with Christ's uh, race. Sanctification has to do with, with, well, the first one has to do with Christ saving us from what we deserve. Sanctification has to do with Christ making us more like Him. Amen. So do we have to be sanctified in order to be saved? It's the renewing of our minds that Paul explains in the text we read before. My understanding is that is that the term justification means to to make straight, to to be put in harmony with. My understanding about sanctification is it means to be made holy. Let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for the lessons that uh, are revealed in the Old Testament uh, through the children of Israel. I also, uh, more than that, I want to thank you for the lessons that were revealed, the life, death, and resurrection of your Son on this earth. I want you to please continue to uh, use the Holy Spirit to transform our lives, to shape our characters, to... Um, change us to heal us so that when you come we may be ready in jesus name amen